Hey, it's Johanna Masca. This week on Press Advance, Ronna McDaniel, the longtime RNC chairwoman, is out. And rumors are circulating that Michael Watley is in. Who is Michael Watley? Well, that's what a lot of people are trying to find out. On the Wikipedia page, it says there is significant restructuring underway. You always love when there's significant restructuring after a national story has said someone is going to be in the political realm. It also happened a little bit with Speaker Mike Johnson. So this week on Press Advance, I talked to Rob Burgess, who is a veteran GOP operative who worked with Michael Watley to try to shed some light on who he is and why it matters that he would be in and someone would be out. As you know, on Press Advance, I like good people in politics, and I don't always love when people manipulate the process. So Rob and I talk about Michael Watley, who was in North Carolina and oversaw the changes to get a lot of North Carolina Republicans in charge such that they have changed the map. So it's fairly lean conservative, lean Republican, even though the state is pretty evenly divided. Rob Burgess tells us who Michael Watley is, why he's excited about the possibility that Michael Watley could come in, and what it means for the general election. Michael Watley is a lawyer by trade, but he's the chairman of the North Carolina Republican Party. He did serve on President Trump's transition committee, focusing mainly on energy policy. But what he really got his name to fame is he is an approachable state party chairman that looks at recruitment, that looks at grassroots, that looks at campaigns from an operative's point of view, which I don't need to tell you, is very rare when you find state party leadership. A lot of these guys are focused on fundraising. They're not necessarily focused on what actually wins elections, which is knocking doors, making phone calls, turning voters out. And the fact that Michael Watley approaches campaigns from an operative's perspective is very a very exciting enticement for a potential replacement for Ron Dane. In terms of Michael Watley's success for the Republican Party, obviously North Carolina was a swing state. He has kind of taken what was a swing state and it's changed quite heavily. It's leaned more heavily Republican. What specifically did he do or that you saw him do while you were there that led to that? He became the focal point of the Republican Party in North Carolina. You've always heard the ad. It felt like he was everywhere. It was because he was actually everywhere. He was recruiting candidates for every race up and down the ballot. I think in his time as chairman, I don't think there was a cycle, at least for the legislature or statewide offices, where the Republicans didn't have a candidate on the ballot. He made sure that we were filling every vacancy with a challenger. And then when you start looking at the majorities the Republicans were able to create in the General Assembly, you know, we it helped guide redistricting. Of course, North Carolina is notorious for having maps. I think they're on their seventh or eighth map of congressional districts in 12 years. But under his leadership, we had large enough supermajorities and Republicans took over the state Supreme Court. They were finally able to pass congressional maps that look like they're going to be able to hold for the next eight years. So tell me about that, because there was a worry about gerrymandering. And anytime any party gerrymanders, essentially what they're doing is trying to make a seat less competitive, which to me means that more extreme people get 
the nod and they subsequently like when they make it less competitive you get crazies in congress north carolina republicans approved a house map that flipped at least three seats basically the supreme court made this possible but it was an effort to make sure that republicans would dominate what is actually a pretty divided state i mean it was a swing state right well, it was a swing state. And when you look at the constitutional office holders in North Carolina, the majority of them are Democrat. The governor's a Democrat, the attorney general's a Democrat, the secretary of state's a Democrat. And so the Democrats still have quite a bit of influence at the state level. And the Supreme Court was controlled by Democrats for a very long time until this past election cycle. In fact, Redistricting happens every 10 years on the year, right? So we were looking at new maps for the first time in 2022, which the state Supreme Court threw out and they drew their own maps, which essentially created a 7-7 state. And that's why you have such a diverse congressional delegation right now. Now you're right, under new leadership, new majorities, new Supreme Court in North Carolina, it's probably gonna be closer to 11-3. We've already seen a couple of Democrats announce they're not seeking re-election because their districts have become so far red. Now, I wouldn't necessarily agree with the premise that it was all necessarily gerrymandering. What I would say is they have probably done a better job of trying to geographically keep as much pockets of voters together as possible, while also maintaining the integrity of metro areas like Charlotte, Raleigh, Greensboro, which are traditionally Democrat areas. And you'll still see Democrat representation out of those three big metro areas. So Representative Jeff Jackson in the Charlotte area is one who is essentially drawn off. Kathy Manning and Wiley Nickel, who's been on the podcast, he's announced he's not seeking this reelection. I know he's shown quite a bit that this gerrymandering has majorly affected these districts. What did Watley do that would have led to these changes? Honestly, he helped provide the resources, the campaign infrastructure for Republicans to win some of the tightest races in the General Assembly and at the Supreme Court level in 2022 in North Carolina. You know, by having that party infrastructure in place, having those resources available, unfortunately, the North Carolina Democratic Party just wasn't able to compete dollar for dollar. And that's why you were able to see gains picked up in the legislature and those seats flip on the Supreme Court. So now, essentially, you know, they've the seats are changed so much that they will not be very competitive in terms of Watley. You know, when I when I look him up again, you know, he did work early on for Elizabeth Dole. He was the chief of staff for Elizabeth Dole. Elizabeth Dole, of course, long time ago, uh, now U.S. Senate. Her husband, I actually have a connection to because I was a fellow at the Dole Institute, which was built at my alma mater, the University of Kansas. My family has Kansas connections. And Dole was responsible for some things, including the Americans Disability Act. He's done a lot that has actually helped people. And And I think, you know, Elizabeth Dole was not known as someone who would really like gerrymander or try to take control or anything like that. It's interesting to me because Watley, you know, since then has lobbied for a lot of various special interest groups. In 2000, he was a member of George Bush's team pursuing the Florida recount. And he has become someone who's become a prominent defender 
of Donald Trump's lie that he won the election, that this election was stolen from him. Tell me about that in the national media, that perception. Like, why is he doing this? Why is he supporting Donald Trump's lie? I ultimately, I, that's probably a better question for Michael Watley than it is for me. But what I can say is, you know, even, you know, you referenced his connection to the recount team in Florida in 2000. You know, a lot of Republican attorneys were part of that recount team, including Governor Asa Hutchinson, who I know has been a guest of the show, right? He was a member of that recount team as well. And so, uh, and I'm sure there are countless Democrat attorneys that are now elected officials that were down there for Vice President Gore as well. But when you're looking at more modern day times, right? Michael Watley was an early supporter of President Trump in 2016. He served on the transition committee, helped advise the administration, was a leader of the 2020 campaign. You know, he has been a, a vocal proponent of the president and has, has never wavered from that. And regardless of whether you agree with it, you know his and the president's contention that 2020 was stolen, whether or not you believe that the president is culpable for some some acts on January 6th and thereafter, you know, we all have the right to support our own candidates, right? And the, I think we can all agree the Republican primary ended a little bit sooner than any of us in the, in the pundit sphere thought it was going to, right? None of us would have thought that this would have wrapped up before Super Tuesday with such names such as Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, you know, Mike Pence, you know, all in this race together. But ultimately, Donald Trump has an organization behind him right now, led by people like Brian Jack, Susie Wiles, Chris Lasavita, that are running probably one of the smartest political campaigns that I've seen at a national level in a long time. They are so focused on delegate count, which is, that's a whole battle right now. Worry about November once you're the nominee. They're so focused on making sure they secure the delegate count right now that they've been able to mathematically close this entire process down well before South Carolina. And, you know, whether or not you agree with them, again, as a political operative, it's been enjoyable to watch to see the politics work and how they approach delegates, how they reach out to those early states. And they really make states like Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada feel special. You're right. They are 100 percent focused on delegates. Nevada is a state where they would have had a primary. They pulled it out. It was someone who was close to Trump, essentially pulling it out into a caucus process, which limits the number of people who can vote for the nominee. They have changed the way in which a lot of these delegates are even assigned. So, you know, if Trump gets more than 50 percent, California is voting right now, early voting. California's delegate rich state. If Trump wins more than 50 percent of the Republicans who vote in the state of California, he will win 100 percent of those delegates. That's different than how the Democratic Party does. You know, political follower or not, I don't like when people kind of stack the deck that way, make it harder for Americans to essentially, you know, get their vote counted. I don't have a problem with the Electoral College. I think the Electoral College is really important. That's how we vote. We vote through our states. But I think it would be far more fair if it was proportional in the Electoral College instead of a winner take all. So California, no Republican vote here is counted, period, because it goes to the Democrats. Kansas, they go to the Republicans all the time. Not a single Democrat in Lawrence, Kansas, where I once lived, is going to get their vote counted. And I guess I'm just a little concerned because it seems like Watley, you know, he's one of those people who's really been successful at 
that process of manipulation. But when we're in a world where we're talking about fake electors and different tactics to basically manipulate the process and ensure that you're the president, shouldn't we be concerned about someone like Michael Watley coming to power? I wouldn't necessarily say that's true. Michael Watley, as far as I'm aware, didn't have any process or hands in, you know, trying to generate fake electors from North Carolina or any other state. Obviously, we all saw it happened in 2021. Ultimately, no fake electors were sat, no fake electors ballots were cast, right? And when the true electors were, were able to cast their votes. And we now have, you know, a, a Joe Biden administration, and that's what the American people are deciding whether or not to keep or change for 2024. You know, I do have to say, though, this isn't unusual in our nation's history. This isn't the first time that a presidential candidate has, you know, used the party rules to their advantage to help change the way delegates are assigned. You know, the first time that I'm aware of it happening was 1912 with Teddy Roosevelt, right? When he decided to rerun as a bull moose, you know, in the Republican primary, he had to start going to the delegates and trying to change the way. Taft obviously decided that he was going to use the party rules in his favor to secure delegates early. You would probably be more familiar than this, but I believe in 2008, there might have been some changes at the Democrat level to, you know, I remember the famous superdelegate conversations coming out. You know, how, how are superdelegates assigned and awarded and how is that fair to all the other Democratic delegates throughout the country? You're so right, because essentially the Democrats did protect themselves in a way from a hijacker essentially coming in and winning the party nomination without ever being involved with the party by essentially saying, you know, superdelegates who are people who are party loyalists who have been around for a very long time are going to have an outweighted vote on this. Now, Bernie Sanders was very against this. Bernie Sanders said, you know, you shouldn't have these. In the Obama campaign in 2008, Rob, we had an entire strategy based around those superdelegates to make sure that the superdelegates were getting courted by the Obama people to get them to move off of what was the establishment candidate, Hillary Clinton, and go to the non-establishment candidate with Barack Obama. These things are super, um, they're always called into question because they essentially remove the control of the voters. And it's interesting you bring that up. I actually think with the superdelegates, it's something that's designed to essentially prevent someone like a Donald Trump from winning your party's nomination at I actually think that that's why Donald Trump ultimately decided he was not going to be a Democrat and he was going to be a Republican was because it was easier in the Republican Party to essentially secure that nomination, which he now has. So tell me, Rob, about like Michael when he's looking at the map. He is really like, does he talk about policies a lot or is he really like heavily like a strategist like doesn't matter you know what the policies are we're going to get a republican in this seat we're going to get a republican in this seat let's get them in this seat because that's a difference honestly watching him you know build out the strategy for north carolina gop in 2022 it was very enlightening because it is a policy argument for him right he truly believes that the Republican Party platform, the policies that Republican candidates were carrying in 22 and they're carrying here in 24 were better than the policies of their Democratic counterparts. 
And so making sure that the candidates had the training available, making sure that the resources were available for those candidates to get their message out and make able to have actual policy-oriented conversations when it came to the election, right? Obviously, you've been around, your listeners understand that at a certain point in election, it all goes down to personality, right? As much as operatives like you and I want to, for it to always be policy-focused, it's going to turn into a personality contest at some point. Um, but Michael Watley always tried to make sure that as long as possible, we were talking about issues. He encouraged us all the time to be to find those issues in our specific campaigns that were our bedrock, our foundation that we felt we had a better position on than our Democratic opponent and focus on those. And he said it doesn't necessarily have to match what the National Party is saying. It doesn't have to naturally match what the state party is saying, but it should match your core foundational beliefs and values as a Republican and why you're running. And if that is what you're strong on against your Democratic opponent, use that position. Uh, And so I really give that credit. What were some of the issues that he really saw in North Carolina would turn that voter turnout for Republicans? We sort of had the gamut. Again, North Carolina is such a unique state, and I loved my time down there. Depending on what part of the state you were in, right, we had the research triangle. So we had a lot of educational issues, right? A lot of questions about, you know, climate change and understanding what the role of science is in our life. You know, then you go down to, you know, Charlotte, which is the second largest financial district in the country outside of New York City, right? Where financial issues and real estate and insurance play a really big role in that community, in that economy. And a lot of the voters down there are concerned what's happening on the House Financial Services Committee. Again, that's the area Patrick McHenry was from. So obviously it's a big area of concern for them. And then you have that whole stretch in the middle that's great agricultural background, great backbone for our farmers and and for our our hog producers, right? And so dealing with the farm bill and talking about those issues that farmers were dealing with day in and day out, how expensive it was to take their product to market, how nobody was buying their product in a tough economy. You know, those were all issues that he was not only versed on, but he could speak with authority and then couple that with his his personal background in the energy space. He knows firsthand the benefit of an all of the above strategy for the American economy when it comes to energy production and not simply trying to hang our hat on just oil or just gas or just wind or just solar or just hydro, right? He, he really understood different parts of North Carolina can provide different aspects to that in, in really encouraging them to all come together and lift it up. And so he would find the issues that, you know, candidates were passionate about, issues that would resonate in those communities and make sure that we were talking about the issues the voters wanted to hear. So micro-targeting. He was very effective at micro-targeting in areas. And so was he one of those guys who would have like blanketed on pro-life issues or he's more like, you know, talk about the fundamentals of the economy? Fundamentals of the economy. You know, again, pro-life, you know, he did support the the Dobbs decision, right, and the overturning of Roe. Uh, A lot of Republicans did in the South. You know, but ultimately, too, he also knew that that wasn't going to play in every district, right? This does not need to be a pillar of your campaign if it does not fit to your district. Uh, There was no edict coming from his office on what our message had to be. So did he allow then for less of a litmus test for those North Carolina candidates? So other people essentially like who had views that were a little different were running. I've never seen him institute a litmus test at all. You know, if you qualified to run as a Republican in the primary, 
he were encouraged to run as a Republican in the primary. He wanted you to get out. He wanted you to shake hands, meet voters. He wanted you to share your ideas and your belief on why you were the best person for the job. And he is a huge believer on letting the primary population pick the nominee. Right. And then he always viewed his job as not to pick winners and losers in the primary. His job was to support the nominee once that nominee was elevated and help that nominee become the you know representative or governor or lieutenant governor elect. So what's he like as a person like married kids? Like what's you know, what's his story there? Yeah, he's got family. You know, they live you know, outside of Charlotte. You know, he's he's a down home guy. Right. He is always traveling. He tries to make it home to his family as often as he can. But he also understands that he made a commitment to the party, to the state. And that's why he's traveling everywhere. You know, he he lives probably a good three and a half, four hours from the state party headquarters in Raleigh. But we were seeing him there all the time. He was making the effort to make sure he was spending time with his family, being dad, being husband, but also being the chair that we needed at the time. So you want to see him in as party chair? From an operative's perspective, I think it would be very refreshing to have, you know, somebody that looks at our national party holistically from my point of view, right? I think too long we've had it, you know, from a fundraiser's point of view. Fundraising is extremely important. You know, the RNC just released their quarterly numbers for last quarter and we're drastically behind the DNC. Obviously, that's something that we're going to have to fix going into an election year here in 2024. Another name that's been mentioned as a potential national chair is Kevin McCarthy. Right. Which when you think about <laughs> Kevin it, Kevin needs a new job, doesn't he? Yeah, he's not a speaker <laughs> anymore. So, um, but you know, when you think about it though, Kevin McCarthy is one of the most prolific fundraisers in our party's history. And if you're looking for that, that traditional model of a fundraising chairman, right. Who's simply going to make sure we have the resources and then rely on operatives who work for the RNC to make those decisions on what to do with those resources. Kevin McCarthy is a great fit too. But the fact that Michael Watley can do both, he's well-respected by the grassroots, candidates and elected officials alike trust him. And then more importantly, he is an operative as well. He knows how to run a campaign. That's extremely interesting to somebody like me. So in terms of this race, Ronna McDaniel, obviously a lot of people have called her into question. Mitt Romney's relative went against Mitt Romney and went like full throated Trump. And yet, you know, her job is on the line. You think that that's right? What was the biggest mistake that Ronna McDaniel made? It's not unusual. Right. We've seen in both Republican and Democrat, you know, the presumptive nominee instill their person of choice to lead the national party when it comes time. And that's to make sure the national party and the the presidential nominee are on the same page going into a general election. Um, I will say she is the longest serving national chair in modern history. She's been there a long time, Uh, but we've had a lot of big losses under her leadership, too. Ultimately, I think that you have to look at the scoreboard a little bit. Did she necessarily fulfill all the goals, hopes, and dreams of the Republican Party? You know, did we expand the base? Did we expand our majorities? Did we hold on to seats that we needed to hold on to? Or did we lose tight seats in between those elections? You know, a perfect example is Yvette Harrell in New Mexico, right? She lost in 2018, won in 2020, lost in 2022, and she's running again, right? You know, is that necessarily the right thing? I'd say we probably had a couple big notable losses under Rana's leadership that we shouldn't have had. And that might have been a big decision factor. So you think that Rana and not Trump was the issue that led to those losses? 
No, I, I didn't say that. I think every candidate carries a little bit of baggage with them too, right? No candidate, yeah. no operative, no party chairman is perfect, right? But what I think ultimately that we have to do as a party is we have to understand who the nominee is going to be. And we have to understand that the party infrastructure is there to support the nominees at all levels and in order to help us win. Now, ultimately, we could have a whole nother episode about whether or not Donald Trump is should be the proper nominee, whether or not uh, we dismiss too many Reagan era conservatives like Asa Hutchinson too early from this process. Right. You know, what did the Republican Party do to patriots like Mike Pence? We could have those conversations and, and talk about the necessity of, you know, is the primary process for the Republican Party the same as it was 12 years ago? But as it sits today, right, this is where we find ourselves. This is the world we live in. So It is interesting, you know, whenever any leader has so much power, they, especially, you know, Donald Trump and how quickly he's been able to take over the Republican Party, their word goes a long way with what happens. Rana, he was a huge fan of until he wasn't. Alyssa Farrah Griffin, he was a huge fan of until he wasn't. Asa Hutchinson, he was a huge fan of until he wasn't. (laughs) So should Michael Watley be worried that Trump will turn on him too? Yes. You know, I, I think everybody that lives within this business needs to understand that when you are in a role such as the national chairman, you are in the role that is in a supporting role to a, a candidate, an elected official, or a nominee. We all are living on borrowed time. You know, we serve at the pleasure of the principal, right? I, I know you worked at the White House. You know, you've heard that phrase before. I serve at the pleasure of the president, right? Too often, I think party leadership gets comfortable and they believe that they are in their seat. You know, it is not their seat. You know, it is the chairmanship of the Republican Party. We are a grassroots organization. You know, I tell candidates all the time, the most powerful position in the Republican Party is not national chairman. It is precinct committeemen. Because precinct committeemen elect our county chairs. Our county chairs elect our district chairs. District chairs elect state chairs. State chairs elect the national chair, right? You know, and obviously nominees can express a preference. But like I said, Donald Trump might support Michael Watley. I don't think that's necessarily been said yet. You know, and he might favor Michael Watley to be the next RNC chair. It's going to take the entire Republican National Committee to ratify that or choose their own chair. And so, you know, as much as I like to see it be Michael Watley, we could see somebody else come out of the woodwork, right? It could be a Kevin McCarthy, right? You could see somebody like an Ann Hathaway from Indiana. You could see, you know, somebody like a Jason Doré from Louisiana. You could see somebody like a Doyle Webb from Arkansas, Right. You know, and so there's a whole bunch of things that could happen here that we just can't, you know, we don't have the tea leaves in front. And it changes pretty dramatically how that race is run against Biden. Is that accurate to say? It does. You know, again, everybody has different strengths and powers and weaknesses. Right. And so a different chairman brings a different skill set means that they're bringing a different type of personality and staff into the RNC building, means that the field program is going to operate differently, the communications strategy is going to be differently, the independent expenditure arm is going to operate differently. Again, it's it's all management style. You know, it's just like, you know, two different banks of the same company might be operated differently across town. You know, it's all about how the bank managers operate. 
It's really important. And it's on the heels of, you know, I did an interview with Paul Tews who won and I adore him. And I think, you know, people like that, I in the Democratic Party want to see more of. I also want people who are like moral and ethical and have a reason to be there for that reason. But in the Democratic Party, we have leaders who have raised a lot of money and not necessarily always the victors. So that will be interesting, Rob. I really appreciate this conversation. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your experience with Michael Watley. I have one last question. You managed Asa Hutchinson's campaign, and I really enjoyed talking to him because when I spoke with him, he really believed in the role of government and the importance of that. Um, I think you're right. You know, it was hard. I know even some of the people who follow me were like, I really enjoyed your interview with Asa Hutchinson. And yet he got no traction. What's going on with the Republican Party that someone substantive who's led a state, who's actually turned on manufacturing their state, just doesn't gain any traction? I, I don't know, right? And that was a very hard thing for me to see as a Reagan conservative myself. You know, thinking that, like you said, two-term governor, right? He had been a three-term member of Congress. He had impeached a sitting president. He understood the dangers of what that meant. You know, he had been the person that George W. Bush tapped to stand up Homeland Security in the wake of 9-11, right? So he had actually secured the border. He had been a U.S. attorney. You know, he had negotiated with domestic terrorists, prosecuted them, and put them in jail. You know, he had a wonderful resume. But what we found going, you know, across the country is there is a more and more separation in the Republican Party from Reagan conservatism than I could have ever believed. I think that we are slowly stepping away from that approach, that that idealism, that shining city on a hill. And we're becoming more of an isolationist party. And I don't know if that's necessarily good. But, you know, I would say when you are looking at the makeup of the Republican Party right now, the, the Reagan conservatism wing is in the minority, right? Whereas I would have said the populist wing was probably in the minority 12 years ago. Asa Hutchinson's a great public servant. I have nothing but great things to say about him. Ultimately, we disagreed on path. I didn't want him to necessarily tarnish his legacy, tarnish his reputation by continuing to go down a path where we weren't getting traction. And I couldn't see a, a pathway to the nomination for him. But I told him multiple times, and I tell anybody who asks, he would have been a great nominee for the Republican Party 12 years ago. You know, if he had run in 2012, if he had run in 2008, right? We might have had a completely different outlook on what an Asa Hutchinson, you know, contribution to the national stage could have been. But, you know, I think to your point, there's too many public servants of that creed, of that caliber, of that character. They're few and far between. And we need more people with that credibility. We need more people with that sense of duty and service to stand up and answer the call to defend their nation, to answer the call to defend their democracy, and really say, you know, this is the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, our way of life, the future for our children is something that needs to be defended at all costs from all enemies. And uh, I'm willing to stand up and do that. I think history will actually judge those who stood against someone who put our country perilously close to a constitutional crisis, perilously close to a very dangerous 
situation at the Capitol. It was dangerous as it was. It could have been worse. I think those who stand against that, history will judge them fondly. But you're right right now in the Republican Party, there was no room for that. And I wonder when Michael Watley, you know, goes to bed at night, whether he truly believes that Joe Biden stole the election or whether he's saying that because the party leader right now says that. Well, let's see if we can get him on the, the podcast. Yeah, you know, I think that would be a great question for you to ask him on the next episode of Press Advance. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Rob, for joining me. Thank you for having me. I love the show. That was fun. You know Trump. You know Biden. You don't necessarily know Paul Tuz, who is literally responsible for President Obama becoming president of the United States. And you don't necessarily know Michael Watley, who has been responsible for a lot of the North Carolina Republican infrastructure. He may be coming in to take over the Republican National Committee. And what does that mean? It's important. It actually matters. I'm really grateful to Rob for coming on Press Advance and giving us a little bit more insight into what Michael Watley stands for and what he would do as RNC chairman. As always, if you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and find us on social media. I am at Johanna Masca. Press Advance is brought to you by the talented team behind the scenes at Situation Room Studios, led by Christine Barada.